On this episode of Goat Gab, we are starting off the new year with a special guest, Mr. Craig Copeland of the renowned Pleasant Grove Herd. We hope you enjoy this delve into the rich history and the day-to-day life of a herd that is successful on so many levels. Welcome back, Goat Gabbers, to another exciting rendition of Goat Gab. As always, I am one of your co-hosts, Cameron. And I'm your other co-host, Laura. And we are so excited to welcome 2022 in as a brand new year. And to start off the year, we have a guest that uh, I'm just elated to have on here. Um, As I was uh, talking to this guest earlier, he's been on our short list ever since we decided to do this um, podcast. So I'm going to let Cameron give a little introduction on him and we'll go from there. I think this this man needs very little introduction to the podcast because he's been frequently mentioned more than any other purebred alpine breeder I know of on this podcast, besides you and myself and Dr. Ed, um, here, uh, he comes from the great state of Iowa. His name is Mr. Craig Copeman. Craig, how are you today? I am doing great. Thanks for having me on. Craig, do you want to tell us, uh, before we get started, a little bit about what you're uh, all about, um, what uh, what happens in the Happy Grove, I mean the Pleasant Grove, um, on you, and tell us a little bit about your story and your upbringing with dairy goats. Well... It's a long story. I've been in it for a long time. Um, I got my start when, I guess really when I was 10 years old, I had my godmother always had goats for her children. They were allergic to cow's milk, so she had goats for a long time. I always enjoyed going up there and playing with the goats. And for Christmas, when I was 10 years old, my godmother and my godfather Surprisingly, each got me a goat. I got a buck and a doe for Christmas when I was two years old. And I guess that's the start of it all. And it started out from there. It kind of became a small forage project and quickly grew. And two years after I got my first goat, seeing the marquee sign for the local fairgrounds that they were having an ADGA show at the local fairgrounds over Memorial Day, went there talked to a bunch of breeders, bought my first registered goats. That's where I got my start in purebred alpines. And before I knew it, I was milking 43 goats by hand, morning and night, as a 13-year-old kid, doing it before I went to school, when I come home from school. And it was that point, it was either, I got to cut way back so I can handle it a little easier, or I need to figure out a way to make some money on it. And I got lucky that year. Cheese Co-op in Wisconsin was looking for more producers, and they had two producers in Dubuque, so it was easy to add me to the route. I was only 15 miles away, so in 1988, I started shipping milk commercially, and it's taken off from there, and I milked about 120, 100 to 125 goats for, oh, from 88 until 2016, and then in 2000. 16 over the winter into 2017 i joined herds with my brother who was milking around a little over 200 head and so combine our herds now and we're now milking 300 in a joint herd and it's really good situation that's the short version of where i come from where i'm at now (laughs) wow that that's a long legacy 
of milking and and with your brother that's pretty darn cool i i didn't realize that so that's that's very neat and um does he uh just alpines and saunas with your brother too yes um it's actually a unique situation he has no interest in the registered goats or showing or anything like that for him it's pretty much just an income source commercial dairy and an income source for him so he actually got started I helped him get started in 2007 and actually, I don't know if Cameron Norman were, remember this or not. He was pretty young at the time. We actually bought 20 couple week old doe kids from Dr. Ed and, and then I kept all my replacements and that's how my brother got started. So we knew where they come from. We knew the health status and everything. So when he started, he was starting with quality herd. And he milked on his own for 10 or 11 years before we joined the herds. <coughs> and we've got a unique arrangement. He owns where the goats are at. He owns the property, the building, and all that. I don't pay rent, but he gets a portion, a percentage of my registered sales that we've got worked out. So it's a win-win for both of us. And how, depending on how you look at it, we each own half the goats, but we don't own specific animals. And I own all the registration papers. <laughs> so <laughs> the unique situation, hard to explain, but it works for both of us. So we're happy with how it's going. I think that's pretty awesome. Yeah, I I first met Craig because we um, ended up selling a lot of our replacement milkers to Craig. And I fostered a relationship. And I, I look at Craig as a not only a mentor, but one of my really good friends that also kicks my butt sometimes um, in the show ring. Uh, so <laughs> I, I, I've been looking forward to this conversation mostly because I hope to figure out how to beat him someday. And I enjoy beating you too. Competition always makes you sharper, doesn't it? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Definitely there. Um, let's talk about what's happening on our farms here. Uh, Laura, what's, what's up with your place here? Really? It, it's this, this is that cold, quiet time. You know, you watch the, watch the does getting bigger and make sure that nobody's fallen behind. And, um, you know, there's always the, the fun job of trying to make sure you've got plenty of hay to make it to spring and looking forward to that, that break before kids start up and so darned excited. I see other people's baby pictures and I'm thinking, Oh, it's not going to be much longer until we start getting kids on the ground. And then I think, Oh, it's not going to be longer before kids are on the ground. Don't get to sleep in so late. You know, it, I, I, I know I have an easy life with a small herd and, and just a hobby herd. So Craig, I feel bad even saying anything about that, but um, you know, that's, that's really about it on the farm here. Nothing very exciting at all. looks like all the does are finally bred. So um, just moving forward like that. What about you, Cameron? Yeah. Uh, on my farm um, again, similar to you, except I, I bred a goat today here. Um, and we are about two weeks away from our first kidding here as well. So again, I bred a goat. The whole circle of life, it seems like is happening um, at my place here. So call me crazy uh, or call me just devoted to getting this goat bred finally um, correctly. So well, we'll see what happens on that one, but hauled some hay. Dr. Ed comes back from vacation, should be back from vacation by the time he gets uh, this podcast drop. So um, the goats will be tucked in and, and everything will be taken care of there. So 
I'm on the road this week here in the great state of Iowa, pretty darn close to where Craig is. So, um, yeah, Craig, what's happening at your place? Well, it's kind of our downtime, even though we're still milking 70-some goats. <laughs> um, but the commercial dairy, milking the 300 head, we plan on milking some through every year. So right now we're milking um, right around 75 head. 65 of them are going to be milked through. They were not bred at all this fall. Um, there's about 10 does that are due in March that are still milk, and they'll get dried up later this month. Um, so it's kind of our downtime. Chores only take about an hour, hour and a half, morning and night with the milk and then feeding and hay and everything. So got a, had a couple snowstorms this week, last Tuesday and over the weekend, so we're dealing with some snow and Cold temperatures now, we were below zero over the weekend, so that always adds a few challenges, but we're getting through. I wondered if you had that bitter cold like we'd had down here. Um, I figured it was probably not any kinder to you up there. These Those below 10 degrees temperatures, it just freezes everything. It makes it, makes it all challenging. Yes, we're used to below zero temperatures pretty much every winter, so... The safeguards are in place. You know it's coming at some point every year, but we've got automatic waterers with water heaters and such. So as long as they're working, things usually run pretty smooth. So what happens up there, Craig, when you guys lose electricity? Hopefully, heck, it comes back on pretty fast. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't know if you had, like, extensive generators to kind of uh, get you through or... Um, you know how you handle that because i can't imagine milking 70 goats by hand and uh hauling frozen water and all the other joyous things that come with no electricity so we have a generator that hooks up to the tractor and is pto powered with the tractor that can that'll run it um unfortunately it's not a big enough generator to run the whole farm when everything's on so when If and when we need the generator, we'll shut off as much power and electricity as possible so that we have the power to run the milk pump and the lights and pump tank and such that's necessary. Fortunately, I can only think of two times in the last 15 years that we've had to use the generator. So knock on wood, it doesn't happen often, and I hope it is a long time before it gets used again. Phew, I'd hope so. Goodness gracious. I, I was thinking 70s, not that far away from 43, but I'm sure Craig was a little younger when he was hand milk at 43, right? Yes, that was 35 <laughs> or more years ago. I'm not that old. <laughs> yeah, you, you, wow. That's that's a lot of goats to hand milk. Yeah. Uh, moving on here, some of the ADGA news here. Laura, do you want to talk about the postal ballot that was passed unanimously? Yeah, that's and that's happy news. And, and you know, I know that we are all hoping that we'll get our papers and, and all of that uh, challenge will be taken care of pretty quickly. But hopefully this postal ballot will help, um, especially our friends who are starting those shows already. I saw pictures of a New Year's Day show. Um feel like that they can get their animals in. And there were, there were two parts, this postal ballot. So part a 
was acceptance of a stamped duplicate for registration dated on or after February 18th, 2021. So that means that all the people that have those duplicates that don't yet have their actual papers in hand will be permitted for any age animal in lieu of a certificate of registration or recordation until March 31st. So basically they're extending those stamp duplicates that they had extended to September and then they extended it out to the end of December and now they've extended it to the end of March. The second part of that postal ballot allows for members to amend certificates of registration or stamped duplicates um, with things like uh, sales. So like if you're a youth and you need to have your animal owned by such and such date, you can send those in and have those stamped for you. Or if you have uh, tattoo issues or retattooed or errors, those can be sent back for a stamp duplicate and those are still able to be used through the end of March of 2022. The other part is if you had an animal who received their championship and it would have been in 2020 um, and you received that letter that came with the championship that said, if you send your papers in uh, you'll get it revised to have that on there. Uh, you can send those papers in with your uh, certificate in handwrite champion or grand champion on there. And they will stamp that for you so that those animals could be shown in champion challenge. Now this doesn't have anything to do with the animals that might've earned their championship in 2021, but it, it will help those animals that maybe got their championships and you just never got around to sending those papers back in. You can go ahead and get CH put on there. So those animals could be shown in champion challenge class. Awesome. Well, that sounds nice. As we look and continue towards the path of getting NG better, I'm going to say, I'm never going to say that it's going to be the best or it is going to be perfect because no system is perfect in the IT world there. Um, this does probably help those members that do have think, do have shows that they would like to show. Right. So hopefully, you know, they keep telling us that they're trying to work on the whole, uh, report of awards being able to enter those in there and i know that in order to get the report of awards up they have to get all the rest of the animals registered so there's a sequential process that it has to take to get this taken care of but hopefully these are some steps that'll allow a little relief for some of our members and keep moving us forward absolutely on that one there uh looks like there's some ng updates that have came out as well there again i i refer that you go look at the communication that comes from the ADGA office. Um, the ADGA office, it can do a lot better job of telling you what is specifically happening rather than Laura and myself there. And again, I, I'm a firm believer of centralized communication, getting out to all the members rather than Laura and I, um, you know, telling you as it is there. Does that make sense? Laura, does that make sense there? Absolutely. Cause you know, I might say something wrong or say something in a confusing manner and then, uh, you know, look, look at those letters that come from ADGA. I really appreciate the more frequent communication that we've been getting. And even though sometimes it doesn't say everything I want it to, or I wish that there was more good news, at least we're getting some news. And so I think that that's, I think that's a good thing. And uh, with uh, the hiring of a communications director, 
hopefully that that will be soon and, and we'll get even more frequent and positive communication from the office. So I'm, re- I'm really excited about that coming forward. So uh, Cameron, yeah. we have a little bit of news on uh, committee, committee assignments, correct? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I know some have already been out there. Um, I have actually been working on my committee um, ever since probably July, uh, December 27th, 28th actually is when we had our first meeting. Um, and I am working on the I am committee. Um, I know a, a very um, daunting task for that group there and what is what is happening um, there. But um, the team that is there is is dedicated and um, ready to go there. I will be as transparent as I possibly can about the work that happens on that committee through this podcast. I don't know what that transparency looks like yet, but when I do, I will share that with you uh, as listeners, because I firmly believe in being transparent with what is happening. However, there are some things that cannot be communicated due to legal reasons um, for the association. So I will be as transparent as possible as I can on that committee there. Um, I do know that they are in the process of getting the Genetics Format 1 um, sent over to um, Gene. So again, that Format 1 is being communicated uh, with the CDCB and the Genetics uh, Format. So again, that technology is being um, released or in testing there. Um, and that has been publicly shared information um, via some Facebook group chat. So I wanted to publicly get that out there as well. And that's exciting. We rely so much on those adgogenetics information uh, for planned breedings and and um, what ifs and, and how that works out. And I know that we've all really missed having that up to date with the most recent information. Uh, yeah, I, I can imagine and on everybody's herd, whether you're small or large, whether you're Laura's size or Craig's size, that some of that technology has been really nice, especially when you're planning the AI breed. Yes, definitely. And if you are waiting to hear back on your committee assignment, it, that should be in the next week, I'm thinking, from what they said. Uh, typically, it's out by now, but of course, they extended the uh, deadline to go ahead and apply for a committee since our convention was so late. And so uh, people are trying to get back to life after the holidays. And I'm, I'm sure we're going to hear something on that really soon. Yes. In addition to that, if ADGA did open, or excuse me, not if, uh, ADGA did open their customer service center starting, what, January 3rd, right? Correct, Laura? Yes. Yep, so, it should have opened the 3rd, yes. yes. When you call in, if you, and this is just some advice from a customer support person, make sure you have that ticket number up as well when you call in. If you do call in with a question there, if you've already filed a ticket, one thing that will do is that will help them locate the problem. In addition to that, that will allow them to close the ticket as well so they have less tickets in their back. Oh, that's a win-win for everybody. Yeah, yeah, absolutely there. Uh, Laura, anything else on the Adga front? No, let's dive in with our topic today with our guest. Craig, you ready? Fire away. All right. So I'm gonna I'm going to start in here. Um, I would like to start out, Craig, just kind of talking about your your breeding program in general. Um, obviously, a major goal for you is to have a profitable herd that uh, pays you a good living. But what are some of your other goals, and how would you describe the breeding program that you have? Well, like you said, my goal is be profitable the commercial dairy is how i make my living i don't have an outside job or town job or anything so it's 
the goats have to be profitable because that's my only source of income. Um, so obviously that's my goal. Um, as far as shows go, goals include, I like to do well in the show ring. I want to keep improving my animals. Specific goals, I would like to someday breed and exhibit a national champion alpine, and I would like to breed and exhibit a national champion Sonnen. I've come close. I've had reserve national champion in both breeds, but I've never gotten to the top of the hill, so that remains a goal. For the commercial dairy, I have no plans to expand. Neither does my brother. We're both happy at the size we're at, and we're actually both in agreement. If we could make a living milking fewer goats, we would. So I guess that's sort of a goal is to increase production to the point that we can milk fewer and make maintain our same level of living. So, so are you, are you actively trying to pursue that goal? Like through different feed rations or bringing in bucks with high production? I know specifically for, um, some of the, the saunas and alpines you brought in, you brought in some different, um, casein genetics as well there. Do you want to kind of, I guess, two part question. One, how do you trying to increase your production? And two, have you done it through genetics and what genetic steps have you done in order to help increase that production per goat? I see increasing production as a fine line to walk. Um, I know you can really push production and you can get those that milk 5,000, 6,000 pounds. But I think when you hit that level of production in general, there's a lot more management needed and it's harder to maintain the goats at that level of production. So, I'm not striving for that type of production. Um, our herd right now, we ship about 2,300 pounds per head per year. And that's actual milk shipped to the cheese plant based on their receipts, what we get paid for. Uh, for those are actually milking a little better than that because we go to a show, all that milk gets dumped, so the goats are producing it, but it's not being shipped. We're not being paid for it. I would like to get to the herd where we're pushing 3,000-pound production. I think at 3,000-pound production as a herd, we could milk fewer and maintain the same level of living standard. Um, but I'm not going to sacrifice health of the animals for extreme production. Um, I am trying to improve components because we're paid pretty good premium on protein, okay premium on butter fat. So I'm actually a little more focused on improving components than I am improving milk. Um, and as you mentioned, alpha casein is one of those ways. Um, I test my bucks. Um, I've, I've brought in, I've used used a couple alpine sires that I knew carried the A. I've kept sons to keep it in my herd. Um, I haven't gotten to the point yet where I'm testing very many does in the herd. I want to get to that point, but it's a cost factor in remaining profitable. So I haven't done a lot, especially when there's turnover and trying to figure out which does do I want to test for casein. I've looked at components for quite a while even before I knew about casein. Um, so I actually have a fair number of sonins that will test 4% butter fat, and that's made a big difference in the profitability of the herd having 
high component sonnens. And a few years ago, I actually brought in a sonnen buck, was the first known sonnen buck in the U.S. to carry an A allele. And my intention was to keep a son on him that also carried the A allele. I sold four sons. I kept five for myself to test. Three of the four that I sold carried an A allele. None of the five they kept carrying. <laughs> oh, gosh so, darn it. Ah. Red luck, dumb luck there. I don't know what you'd call it, but now <laughs> I need to go back to the daughters out of that buck that are good enough to keep a buck out of, see if any of them carry an A, and see if I can get the A in my herd through the daughters of that buck. So when you say good enough, what do you, what does that mean to you? And are you talking about it maybe from a show perspective or a commercial dairy perspective? From both. For the most part, anytime I talk about the goats and how good they are or such, I'm looking at it from both sides all the time. In my eyes, the commercial herd is my show herd. My show herd is my commercial herd. I don't really differentiate them. They're all housed together, kept together. They're not managed separately or anything like that. To me, they're one and the same. When I decide to keep a buck, I'm looking at a combination of production, components, and type. And when I'm looking at type, the doe's got to have enough all-around type that I want to keep a buck out of her. But then I'm looking... More specifically, I'm looking at specific traits on that doe. Am I trying to improve udders or medial suspensory ligament or fore udder length? Or am I trying to improve front ends? Or am I trying to improve rear leg set? So that adds a second layer to what I'm looking at, how I'm deciding who to keep bucks out of. That makes, that makes sense. Yeah, that makes perfect sense there. Well, I'm glad you brought up type. And that's something that I, I know Laura and I have talked about. Me and my dad and I have talked about. Catherine and I have talked about. Pretty much everyone that you know I have a close relationship with have talked about with your herd is your specific type. And your specific type is you create so much consistency of said type. Right? It doesn't matter if you're bringing in bucks from one herd uh, or another herd, or or if you're bringing in bucks from the West Coast, the East Coast on the sauna inside there, or even on the purebred Alpine herd. In your opinion, and if you have not been through Craig Copeman's Pleasant Grove um, herd books that he does, I do recommend that because you will see so much consistency of type there. Um, what what do you think you do specifically to keep that type so tight and correct for your herd? I will say it's hard to get consistency of type with a big herd like I have. But how I've done it is I use a buck on a lot of does and then I line breed. Number one, I breed for what I like. So I know what I like and that's what I'm breeding for. I don't chase trends or this is hot, the taller, longer doe is hot, the really big udders is hot. I don't chase the hot trend, I focus on what I like, and I go with that. Um, one of the biggest ways I think I get consistency of type with such a large herd is I've got a very high doe-to-buck ratio. Um, I typically breed 350 to 400 does a year. I take that back. 
300 to 350 to breed 350 does i'm only using 12 to 15 bucks so each buck is getting used on 20 or 30 or 40 does so that leads to consistency of type because you're getting a lot of kids out of each buck rather than having say five does to one buck or ten does to one buck which a lot of show herds have that they might be milking ten does and have four bucks to breed those ten does you don't see as much what each buck can do when you're not getting as many off so i think that can so basically what you're saying is you're kind of you're really proving out your own bucks in your herd and giving them every opportunity to show you what what they've got so you're able yeah. able to use that information to set your type pretty strong yes and i bring when i bring in a new buck i use him right away on a bunch of animals now one thing that i do a little differently is when i bring in a young buck he generally only gets used on doe kids the same age that were born the same year as him so like buck i brought in last spring march of 2021 he only got used on kids that were born in 2021 i'm not using them on mature does i use mature bucks on mature does so i keep 75 to 100 replacements every year so the young bucks i keep are getting bred to about 20 doe kids that year so every year i bring in a new buck next spring i'm keeping five to ten maybe more doe kids out of that buck so that buck turns two i've got milking daughters and a group of milking daughters that i can see what he's doing and is he throwing consistency is he throwing what i brought him in for and generally i know by the time a buck turns three i know whether that buck's going to be here for a lifer or if i want to sell him because by the time he turns three i've got two-year-old daughters i've got milk and yearling daughters and i think that second year getting them fresh the second time and having a second kid crop on them freshen can reinforce what you think that buck's doing or can show you that maybe he's not doing what you thought based on the first kid crop and that's when I make my decision, how good is this buck? Is he something I want to keep keep around and use for the next four or five years? Or is he something I want to move on to somebody else that I think he can do good for their herd? Or is he a buck that, nope, he's ruined a bunch of things. Time to sell him, take him to the sale barn. A couple questions from that here. First, Well, first one comment here. I know because I've borrowed bucks for, I've leased bucks from Craig Copeman in the past. I know what they look like after they're done, after they spend maybe a week or two at his place. And oh my God, they are used. They are very much used. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know what? The 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 amount of goats you get to see out of those bucks when you when Craig Copeman leases a buck from you is great because you can see so many daughters, or when you lease a daughter or a buck from him as well, that's always good too. But my question, and it kind of goes back to the culling idea there. So if you're freshening so many daughters, how many of those are you culling? Or do you know kind of within that first yearling milker group, you know, okay, judging by how many you cull, if this buck's going to need to stay around or not? I kind of, a lot of it goes by how consistent he is in that daughter group. Um, 
I try not to judge a buck with at least five, unless he has five milk and daughters. Because if he's got less than that, then I think there's potentially too much maternal influence yet to really know what the buck's doing. If there's five or more daughters, you can see what the buck's doing. If I can, if I see the consistency and consistency of quality, that's what I'm looking for. Every buck I've ever had has thrown really good daughters. Every buck I've ever had has thrown really crappy daughters. <laughs> Every buck will do that. For me, it's the consistency. Is he consistently throwing good quality animals? I would rather have a buck that consistently throws quality than have a buck that throws wildly good animals and wildly bad animals. I don't want the two extremes. I want consistent quality. You would rather have the middle, that that middle part, than the standard deviations on the outside. I would rather be on the plus side of the middle. I don't want to be on the middle, <laughs> but I don't want to be the extreme standard deviation. Craig, something that, that um, you, you mentioned there when you were talking about culling and so forth, um, we all recognize that bucks are important, and I think you do a really awesome job of of managing a large herd and choosing the right bucks for each breedings. But something that has always struck me um, as amazing is the fact that you breed it, or it appears to me that you breed very strongly on dam lines. And I think every year when I look through your uh, herd brochures, which I'd like to talk about that too. So remind me to jump back to that here in a little bit. Okay. Um, when I look through your herd brochures, I'm always I, I'm always struck by the dam lines and, and the way that you kind of uh, lay them out in dam lines. Will you talk a little bit about that, how how you breed using your dam lines? Um, well, I definitely breed on dam lines, and it's, I don't know how you really want to define it or whatever, but in my son and herd, um, 300 goats, we're milking 300 head. It's roughly 210, 220 alpines, 80 or so sonnens. Um, in those sonnens, I have five dam lines. So even though I have a very large number, it's still concentrated in dam lines. And then my alpines, even though there's 200 plus milking does, um, I would say I probably only have six or seven dam lines in my alpines. Wow, that's not very many for the for that large of number. That's pretty amazing. And why do you think that number is so small? And does it go back to just the consistency of type, or what's what's your thought about that? There, I think it's the consistency of type, and when you find a dam line that's good, you just keep breeding on it, and. Maybe I'm being a little generous when I say dam line, but like in my alpines, I consider, I name my goats by letter of the dam. So a donated matrix, all her kids, granddaughters, great granddaughters, et cetera, et cetera, all, all going to start with M. My jamming line, they're all going to start with J. So that's what I consider a dam line. My M line goes back to the original kit I bought, original purebred kit I bought in 1986. And so I've got probably 
90 to 100 does in my in my alpine herd that would be an m name they all go back to that doe there's lots and lots of branches now this is 35 plus years later but i can still still consider that the same damn line um but there's also damn lines within that damn line if that makes sense (laughs) Oh, yeah. for sure. That's so cool. I mean, to think that they all go back to that, to that one doe and, and dang it, Craig, that's a lot of M names you've had to come up with over the years. Dictionary and baby name websites. That's how I name those. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we've talked a little bit about calling there, but um, I remember some of my first conversations with you, Craig, and how you decided to call. Can you talk to our listeners about your three criteria to call goats at Pleasant Grove? Um, number one is profitability. And I define profitability by you make me money this year, regardless of how you made it. Um, I want the doughs to make me money by producing milk. But they can make money... They can be profitable by selling an offspring. Example, I had a doe this last spring. I thought she was gorgeous as a yearling. Took a nice picture of her. Lots of people around the country love the looks of this doe. She freshened last spring with basically no milk. I mean, there was literally two squirts the day she kidded. She had this monster single doe kid, hard kidding, and... I eventually got her to come into milk, but she did not make me any money on her milk this year. She lost money on the milk, but she had a kid reserved and I sold that kid. And what I sold that kid for that doe made me money this year. So she was profitable. So even though she didn't milk enough, there was a reason she didn't milk enough, but she also was still profitable this year. So profitability is the first thing. And Milk is the main way to be profitable, but you can also be profitable by selling offspring. Um, really poor type will get you cold. Um, I'm big on udders. Anybody that knows me knows that udder is the most important thing in my herd. The way I milk, I milk from behind on a stand. I see the udders every day over and over. You got to have a nice udder. If you've got a droopy udder, wide teats that you're kicking with your legs, that sort of thing. You can milk 3,000 pounds. You're not going to last in my herd. I might put up with it for a year if I've got room in the herd, but if the barn's full, I'm going to call that doe that's got a poor udder and milks 12 pounds before I milk the doe, before I call the doe with a really nice udder that milks 10 pounds a day because they're both profitable, but... I see more future and potential in that dough with the nice udder milking 10 pounds a day than the bad udder dough milking 12 pounds a day. So I hope that makes sense. Very much so. Does attitude, does attitude or personality, the animal enter in there? Yes, it does. Not a lot, but it definitely figures in there. We've got a rule at our parlor. Um, no, Excuse my language, but no pissing or shitting in the parlor. <laughs> we have that rule too. 
basically got two weeks from the time you freshen to learn that rule. And if you become if you become an habitual habitual offender, you're going to get cold pretty quick. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I, well, Craig, when I was there last time, that was not the case, though. You probably scared him, Cameron. You were different. That's you got to give him a you got to give him a buy for things like that, right? Yes, goats love routine. Anything that changes the routine screws them up. If there is somebody new in the parlor, somebody comes to watch. Um, nutritionist shows up while we're milking. Anything like that, you the goats. They know something's different, and that little bit of nervousness, goats start shitting in the parlor. So, <laughs> we excuse that. We don't like it, but we excuse it. <laughs> when the routine is being routine, better not be doing that. Yeah, I'm glad I'm not the only one who who thinks that that is just the ultimate of rudeness. You don't do that. That's just, don't be a stand pooper is what we call them at home. That's just, you just that's just wrong. <laughs> What about genetic potential, Craig? You've always taught me that some goats could maybe just stay on a little bit of genetic potential. Or has that changed? Say that again? You've always talked about genetic potential. Have you ever kept a goat on genetic potential and maybe it'll live up to the uh, the thing next year? Yes. I'll kind of go two ways with genetic potential. Number one, I don't judge yearlings harshly. We breed our does. We want everything fresh if possible as a milking yearling. I want them fresh between 12 and 14 months. Um, so I don't push for production as a milk and yearling. As a milk and yearling, basically, I want you to milk enough, pay for your feed that I've stuck in you to get you to a milking yearling. I don't need you to make profit as a milk and yearling. I just need you to pay for your past expenses. Milking a large herd, I found lots of does that milk okay or what some people would say subpar as milk and yearlings but do really really well as two and three year olds i've had those that milked 12 or 1300 as a milk and yearling they went over 2000 as a two-year-old 3000 as a four-year-old 3500 as a four and five year that's because i saw the genetic potential in them and I didn't give up on that 1,200-pound milk a year. Now, it doesn't always work out like that. And if you put, if you do that as a milk and yearling and you putz along as a two-year-old, you're going to be gone. So That makes, makes sense to me. Yeah. Perfect sense there. Maybe. So I've learned to judge milk and yearlings too hard. And it's maybe it's an advantage I have because I have such a big herd and the commercial aspect of it that i don't have to be as harsh on my milk and yearlings um the second side of genetic potential that i sort of want to touch on is in my kids people always ask how do you decide with that many animals how do you decide what kids you're going to keep and people always want to see pictures of kids and judge my kid for me and tell me, is this kid good? Is it going to turn out or not? For me, I, I make all those decisions before the first kid is born. I look at all my breedings and I rank them all in a spreadsheet. I give them every breeding. I give a rating one through 10 
and I all, and then I break those down into yes, no, or maybe. Actually, I, I rate all those ratings yes, no, or maybe, and then I break down each section into a rating from one to ten, and that's where I'm going to keep my kids. And the reason I have a maybe group is if I get a lot of kids reserved that I can that are sold into other show herds or expanding herds, then I might drop down into my maybes to keep. Or if a lot of my keeper kids are not born, and I to keep to get my seventy-five to hundred replacements, I may have to dip down into my babies. So all my decisions there are based on genetic potential, based on the sire and dam. Yeah, that wow. I guess I never knew your rating system. That's that's crazy there, and that's three hundred goats you're organizing, correct? You organize all three hundred of them, even the first fresheners and everything else. Yes. Okay. Yep. Okay. Wow. So speaking of that, that kind of leads me into some questions that I had just about the sheer scale of things. Even with a little tiny hobby herd that I have, there there are times where I'm like, ooh, that's kind of fallen through the cracks. How do you keep things like hoof trimming or um, just regular herd maintenance from going by the wayside or somebody getting missed? How do, how do you handle all of that? Do things in bulk, so to speak, I guess. <laughs> um, our hoof trimming, we've got a guy comes in and trims the whole milk and herd twice a year. Once in the spring, usually in April, and once in the fall, usually in October. Does the whole herd, everything. Show does, obviously, anytime they're going to go to a show, or if I am go through and clip up a bunch of does for a picture day, I will trim feet for that. Um if we see something getting long toes or such, we can do them in the parlor. Um, our parlor, Cameron's seen it, but to sort of describe it, it's a raised deck that's like 37 inches tall. So where the goats stand, and we can pick their foot up real easy right under our arm and trim back feet. And we can do that right in the parlor real easy. And those that we notice getting long, we'll do that. If front toes are getting long, we'll catch them as they come out of the parlor and trim up a front foot. But for the most part in our herd, twice a year trimming is enough. That's why you breed for good feet, right? Yes. Yes. What about like your vaccine or your, some of your like um, worming and other things there? Do you guys do a lot of that or, or other things? We used to do a lot of worming. We wormed on a regular schedule 15 plus years ago um in recent years since i started working somewhat with iowa state especially with dr Plummer, and looking at some research on worming wormers dewormers get overused and in talking with dr Plummer, we realized we were deworming for essentially no reason our milk our does once they freshen they go into the barn on bedded pack and they never go back out on pasture where they're eating grass and can pick up worms. So we were worming the milking herd every year as they freshened for no reason. So we quit doing that. So hopefully we're doing our part to stop the resistant worm problem. But, um, our young stock, we usually worm them 
kids are born generally February 1st, give or take, they will start going out on dry lot or pasture um, in May or June. We will worm usually around June 1st, try to get them three to four weeks after they've been turned out on pasture to catch the start of any worm problems. And then if we see any sign of worms at all, we will go through and worm them all in September, usually right before breeding starts on the young stock. Gotcha. And we're done twice a year. Usually in May, once they start going out on pasture, and the bucks also get wormed again in August before we start breeding. What about, um, you know, it's kidding season, and uh, you obviously don't sleep very much. I've, I've been to your house um, during your large kidding days uh, there, but um, kidding season's around the corner. It's coming up. But how do you do a lot of your, like, buck sorting there? Do you ever keep any back, or do you always look to sell them to the taco man, as our good friend Randy says? Well, it starts by, it goes back to that list I made. All the kid decisions are made based on the breedings I have. Sire and dam, I know it all. I have all those decisions made before the first kid's born. We will generally keep somewhere between 40 and 60 buck kids as breeding stock. And we sell a fair number to other commercial herds, great commercial herds that are not interested in registered animals, but they know the value of a high quality buck. So they come to a registered slash commercial herd to get that buck. So we have a strong market for that, but I'm also picky about the bucks I keep. My first rule on keeping a buck is if I won't use him myself, I'm not going to sell him to you. So I could sell a hundred bucks in a year, but I look at my herd, I don't see a hundred bucks worth keeping as breeding bucks. So it gets limited there. The buck kids that are not kept as breeding bucks, they go, we actually, we're fairly lucky. There's a strong market for them and we're probably giving up some money the way we do it. I know the last two years, there's been guys coming from Indiana and Illinois and Wisconsin into Iowa and Wisconsin paying 20 and 30 bucks a head for buck kids less than a week old. All our buck kids, we've got a neighbor kid that helps us bottle kids in the spring when we have our big rush. Shouldn't say spring, January, February. When we have our big rush, we're bottling so many kids. And the way we pay him is we give him the buck kids. He raises them up. He sells them. He gets the money for them. So we're not getting a lot for the kids, but there's benefit to us because we know we have a place for the kids. We know they're, they're going to go every year. Kids are getting picked up every day. Kids 24, buck kid is 24 hours old and he's not going to be kept as a breeding buck. He's picked up and he's left the farm. So I don't have to worry about feeding him. Is he going to survive? Whatever. 24 hours and he's gone. So that's the benefit to me, and that's kind of how we do that. That's that's awesome. I need somebody like that. That's brilliant. Yeah. I mean the work the work that those baby goats take. I mean they're adorable and everything, but when you have hundreds of them, uh, being able to get them gone in twenty four hours, I think is would be an amazing blessing. Absolutely, it's huge because 
we have so many doe kids. Our kid shed fills up with the doe kids. I mean, there's days we're pushing it. We're maxed. We've got our kid shed maxed out. If we had to deal with them buck kids, even for three, four, five days old, it would lead to disease or losing kids, doe kids, and that's where my profit's at. Not enough buck kid that I could maybe get 20 or $30 for. My profit is in those doe kids that are worth two or $300 as commercial does or five, six, seven hundred thousand dollars as registered stock. That's where the, my money's at. So I'm focusing my effort on those doe kids, the genetics there and those doe kids. I want those, we call them dud bucks. I want those dud bucks gone in 24 hours. <laughs> I don't have the time or groom to deal with them. <laughs> oh yeah, for sure. Not to what mention sanity. <laughs> oh yeah, the sanity. I, I don't know if you milk 300 goats, how do you have much sanity? <laughs> I don't know. I might be insane. But. <laughs> hey, speaking of insanity, I just have a question for you. Do you have many first freshening two-year-olds? No. Is part of that because they are insane and hard to deal with? I don't want first freshening two-year-olds because I don't like dry yearlings. And I don't like dry yearlings because... When they don't freshen until two years old for the first time, that's one extra year of feed I put in them without getting any return. It's harder and it, for them to become profitable. It takes them longer before they become profitable. So I don't want dry yearlings. I don't want first freshening two-year-old. Um, Make, makes sense there. I, I would agree with that, even on a non-commercial side of things. So I get that. Yeah. How do you keep everything organized? Like you've got 350 does you're milking. You've got a hullabaloo of kids. How do you keep, how do you know where everything is? And how do you know who is who when you go to register them and everything else? Basically, I have three copies of everything. Um, we have a spiral notebook that we keep in the barn. And we put our breedings in there. When we're breeding in the fall, doe gets bred, we write her down. Um, and sidetrack here a little bit. When we're breeding, we sometimes breed 40 or 50 does in a single day. And when we breed them, we've got our list. But we've got who the doe is, who they're going to get bred to. When they get bred, we put a check mark or something to confirm that the breeding was done. When we're done breeding them all, I take that list in and I write them all in the book. Once I've got them written in my spiral notebook, I take a picture of the spiral notebook. That's my second copy. I've got a picture on the phone. I take my phone to the house and I pull up the picture and I transfer all that information to my computer and I put it in an Excel spreadsheet. So I've got all my breeding information, kidding information, et cetera, in my computer in a spread Excel spreadsheets broke down by year and all these different folders. And I've got that going back in my computer. I think I've got it going back to like 2005. I've got the notebooks here and there's a pile of notebooks. I've got the breeding records going back to 1990. Wow. That's so cool. So that's how I keep track of it. And I, I'm making lists all the time. Um, like everybody, I'm thinking about potential breedings and such all summer long and such. And I make my breeding list. And because we breed so many does in such a short time, 
I don't put out a list of what my planned breedings are because my planned breedings can change hour to hour because a buck can only be used so many times in a day. So depending on who comes in heat in a day, there might be 15 does that I plan to breed to, for example, jam. But I breed 10 of them. Some of them got to go to second choice. So my list of breeding, I've got all the does list and I've got who their sire is, who I brought them to the previous year. And then I have first choice of who to breed them to and second choice of who to breed them to. So that way, if my first choice isn't available because he's already bred 10 or 12 does today, I can go to the second choice and I don't have to think about it and come up with it on the spot. I've got it right there on my list. That makes sense. Wow. That's a, a lot of organization and a lot of spread time in Excel. So I'm sure it's a little easier with the Alpine since you have quite a variety of colors. Do you have like collars with names on them or uh, what visual cues do you have? So you know which ones they are. So you're not always grabbing uh, tattoos. I'm thinking about the Sonnens, especially, Uh, you know, yes, I know you can tell them apart after a while, but that's a lot of white. I get that question quite a bit. Um, the milk and herd, I know everything. I pretty much know them all by their udders. That's how I can tell who's who. You show me that somebody will, they'll point out a son and do and say, who's that? I'll say, I got to turn it around. I got to look at the udder and then I'll know because a white head's a white head. They all look the same. Just about. <laughs> I know everybody by their udders. Um, on the kids, well, back up still on the milkers everything is tattooed can read the tattoo but once they freshen everything gets a neck chain and a neck tag and we used to do plastic tags they get chewed up and they only last one to three years we've gone to doing brass tags now we're metal tags and they work they can't chew them up destroy them you can always always read them so that's how they're identified. And in my computer, all my list of the goats, I've got three identifications for them. They've got their tag number, which is their neck chain. They've got their name if they're registered. And then I also have their tattoo. So on every list I've got, there's the three forms of identification. That way, anytime I can always go back and cross-reference. If I wrote down this doe by your name or if I wrote the a note for myself by your tag. I can always go back and cross-reference who's who. Um, on the kids, we've got the kids all start out in a hundred-gallon water tank is what we start the kids in, and we've screwed on little clips to each of the water tanks. And when we put kids in the in that tank, we write on a piece of paper who the dam is what they had for kids, a buck, a doe, two bucks, two does and a buck, whatever. And then we write the colors on what those kids are and what's in that tub. And we keep them separate. We don't put multiple sonnens from different does in the same tub unless it's like this doe had twin bucks, this doe had twin does. Okay, those four sonnens can go in the same tub because you know them by sex. Otherwise, sonnens get put in different tubs, but you can put alpines in with them. And you know them by their color. And sometimes to know them by their color until they get tattooed, you got to get creative. Sometimes they're written on there as 
Kublonk with black legs or Kublonk with white legs. Because you've got Shamalze with white belly versus a Shamalze with a black belly. So, or it might be solid black kid, black kid with a white star in his head. <laughs> There's little differences that keep them separate because the barn fills up fast, and that's how we do it. And it's also we tattoo them at two to three days old because we got to get those kids out of those tubs onto the automatic feeder, get that tub cleaned out and sanitized for the next kid kids that are born. So that's how we identify the kids. And through the summer, when I'm looking at my kids, if a kid catches my eye, I got to catch them and check the tattoo because that's the only way I know the kids throughout the summer. Gotcha. So when you try to find your AI kids for the Iowa state fair, you're just going through your pen, um, looking at all your Alpines, for example, and trying to find your AI kids. I narrow it down a little bit first. <laughs> I go on my computer and I look, okay, AI kids, I've got two Chamos A's and I've got a Kublong. So now when I go on the pen, I know I don't have to look at any of the Sun Gaws or any of the two-tone Chamos A's. <laughs> I've got to narrow down a little bit. It helps a little, saves some time. But yes, basically I'm going in the pen and trying to find those specific kids. And I'm checking out the tattoo. <laughs> for our listeners that may maybe don't remember or don't know um the iowa state fair has this really cool thing where they pay is it double premiums for ai kids yes ai ai sired animals get double premiums at the iowa state fair Which is, that is so cool that is such a neat thing that they do well craig i have a, I, I have maybe go ahead craig I don't know whoever got it started, but it was something they did back in the, I believe in the 80s, somebody pushed for it as a way to promote the use of AI in dairy goats, and it's never been changed, so nobody ever says anything, just leave it be, it's in the rules, don't look at them, and I take full advantage of it. <laughs> I think don't that's very cool. Very much, but the Iowa State Fair, I show kids, and people say, well, how do you pick your kids? You've got 75 kids out there. How do you pick your kids to show? Iowa State Fair pays double premiums on AI kids. I go grab my AI sired kids, and as long as they look look the part, that's who's going to the state fair. <laughs> I love it. So, Craig, looking back over the years, just kind of maybe a little lighthearted question here. In, in thinking about Sonnens and also thinking about your Alpines, um, if you had to pick out like some very favorite animals that you've bred over the years, do you have some that just stand out in your mind as as ones that y you will always remember as being extra special? Yes. Um, a couple of alpines. Two that I've bred. One is actually a Boughton doe, but she's easily the most influential doe in my herd. Um, I have a doe named... Pleasant Grove SSO length. She was a 2011 reserve national champion. She holds a special place in my heart. I picked her out as milk and yearling. I said, that's the one. And I always had a soft spot for her. I mean, she went reserve national champion. That just sealed the deal. Um, I had a doe named Pleasant Grove super mink, which she was born in 2001. And she lived to be 13. She was profitable in the dairy as a 12-year-old. 
forget making kids or anything. She was paying her way with her milk as a 12 year old. Wow. I really appreciated that. She appraised excellent 91 multiple times. Um, she was a national class winner as a five-year-old, as a seven-year-old, as a nine-year-old. He was second place age dote, the national champion both of those years. So she holds a special place in my heart. And I'm actually milking. I sold her last daughter two years ago. And I am milking a milking yearling and two two-year-olds that are her granddaughters. And she was born in 2001. So she holds a special place in my heart with the longevity there. And 20 years apart, I've got a granddaughter out of her when she was born 20 years ago. And then That's exceptional. The Easily my all time favorite doe in my herd is a doe named Stardust Cordite Sabo. Be still my heart. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> Cameron knows all about her. Um, I bought her as a dry yearling. One of my mentors was Matt Gansmer from the Stardust Dairy Goat Herd in Dubuque. He sold out in 1996, and I bought his herd, and she came as a dry yearling when I bought his herd. And she was just freshened as a two-year-old for the first time, and she was just kind of an okay doe as a two-year-old and a three-year-old. Four-year-old, she kind of came into her own, and I showed her. I finished her as a four-year-old, and then she didn't freshen as a five-year-old, but she'd already made that impression on me. I made an exception for her, and I kept her around as a dry doe all year as a five-year-old. She freshened as a six-year-old, and she looked stunning, and she was... I believe she was my first ever national class winner in the Alpine breed. And she was first place age doe as a seven-year-old, first place age doe as a eight-year-old. She praised excellent 93, my first ever excellent 93 E across doe. And as a nine-year-old, people that were around 20 years ago might still remember this. The H Doe class in Harrisburg in 2004 was a high-powered class, and I had Saba there. Saba there that had won was first place H Doe two years in a row. Roshona was there, who was a three-time national champion at this point, and she come, she now aged into the H Doe class. And I remember very distinctly, judges came in; they did all the usual stuff felt the does, got the information on them. And then they kind of pointed at me and said, go stand over there. And then they pointed at Billy Woodward with Roshona and said, go stand over there. And we both kind of went and stood over on the side. And they went back and they judged the entire rest of the class, placed them all. And then they came back to us too. And they spent, I believe it was close to a half hour going back and forth in these two does, trying to figure out who was going to be their first place doe. And that uh. just really stuck and I ended up second but I still felt really good because to push Rashon ended up being national champion to push a four-time national champion that far that it was that hard for the judges to decide made me feel proud and she was 
number one, she transmitted to her sons. Cameron knows this. Yeah. So I had her son super stand out. Yeah. Uh, a little fun fact about that 2004 Nationals. One of her granddaughters was first place junior kid at that national show as well. So in my herd. So it really goes to show how darn good she was. Yes. That's a pretty amazing. That's an amazing story that those are the things that you'll think back on forever. And just, that's just pretty amazing. She's even though she didn't throw a lot of does, I never got many daughters out of her. But Saba is in the pedigree of 95% or more of my alpines. I got to look long and hard to find an alpine in my herd that does not have Saba in the pedigree. And she actually, she influenced my son and her too, because one year her daughter accidentally got bred by a Sonnen buck and she had triplet does. And that started my S line in the Sonnens. So she actually had... <laughs> national champion recorded grade offspring <laughs> or descendant i guess wow 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 how cool is that yeah craig uh end of the podcast now let's talk a little bit about 2022 um what do you want to tell our listeners about the pleasant grove herd if they want to find out more information about your herd uh, tell us where they can find more information we're on Facebook. You can find us on the farm page at Plug and Grove Dairy Goats on Facebook. Um, I also have my own personal Facebook profile, Craig Copeman. Um, I do the majority of my stuff through Pleasant through the Pleasant Grove Facebook page. Um, that's pretty much my only web presence. I do not have a website or anything. Um, my advertising is through Facebook and word of mouth. Um, and it's worked well for me. Um, I can also be reached by email, ccopeman at msn.com. And if you email me, make sure you have two ends on ccopeman. That's the biggest thing people miss is they only put one end on and I never see the email. <laughs> what about your breeding or your, uh, your, your paper sales list that no one else has besides you? I also do a herd brochure every year. I have one for the Sonnens, one for the Alpines. Um, I work on it throughout the fall when I get time. Um, after everybody's bred, I finished it up and I usually start sending it out in around the first of December, end of November. So if you're interested in seeing my herd brochure, let me know. Hit me up on my Facebook profile or through the Pleasant Grove Gary Goats Facebook page ask for it. Um, I can send it direct message. I can also email a copy to you. Um, it gets to be a fairly extensive brochure with as many animals as I have. Um, so I prefer to do it all electronic. Um, cause it gets fairly expensive doing that big a one on paper, but I do a hard copy for a number of commercial herds, primarily Amish that, generally don't use electricity. So I do hard. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you though, to our listeners, when, when it's the time of year that Craig's brochure comes out, it's almost like when the old 
uh, JCPenney or Sears Christmas wish book came out because it's always something that I print off on my color printer and sit and peruse and just drool over these animals because it's so much fun to see see what he's doing and the breedings he's making and and where different animals have matured over the years so um it's it's very very much i really appreciate having a herd brochure in hand to look at um i've missed that over the years it's very rare that you find anybody that does those anymore and I appreciate how it's a PDF, how I can be a searchable document. So all I have to search is Jammin, and I'll see all the Jammin daughters I want to see. Thank you. I appreciate that. And it's, it's a fairly extensive brochure. I've got lots of pictures in it. The pedigrees are there. Um, information about the animals. I've got a few reference animals that are in the pedigree are very are, are influential animals of current herd members. So lots and lots of information in it and i list all the breedings due dates prices for kids and such so very extensive it's a big undertaking but i'm happy to do it <laughs> also something else that i want to mention that craig does that i have so much fun with this time of year um you, you feature different does on your pleasant grove facebook page um kind of like a pinup girl for, for lack of a better description of it, but it's always fun to see who you're going to feature and, and what you have to say about them. So that's, that's always a, a good thing to see if, if you're not friends with the pleasant Grove page, you should follow it just, just for the eye candy that he puts out there. Yeah. He does put a lot of eye candy out there, but Craig, nonetheless, thank you for spending uh, some time with us today. And we do appreciate it. Um, we feel like you're a legend of guests since you're always mentioned on the podcast. I don't know that I'm a legend, but <laughs> I'm appreciated and some of the things I do are appreciated. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Craig, for being part of our podcast this week. We've really, really enjoyed it. And as always, we thank our listeners for being part of our uh, weekly lives, too. We're excited to see 2022 here and can't wait to see what this next year holds. Uh, please give us ideas and feedback. And if there's something special that you'd like us to talk about, or uh, maybe a, a certain guest that you'd like us to see if we can get on here, please let us know that too. We'll do our very best to do that. Thanks y'all and have a great week. Bye-bye. Thank you.